in pure performance, CeeDee Lamb over the last 11 games has been the best receiver in pro football. I still think he's underrated. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 95, in honor of Richard Dent, a bad man on the baddest defense I ever saw, the 1985 Bears defense, Richard Dent, Super Bowl MVP, Pro Football Hall of Famer, this after not being drafted until the eighth round out of Tennessee State. What a rise for Richard Dent. But this, as always, is the un-undisputed, everything I cannot share with you during the two-and-a-half-hour debate show that is undisputed. In episode 95, I will go deep, maybe creepy deep, into how the Jimmy curse was just broken And how breaking the Jimmy curse is going to launch my Dallas Cowboys on a deep playoff run. I will also tell you why I love Jim Harbaugh because I do not like Jim Harbaugh. And I will tell you about how I am increasingly highly amused over the rising internet buzz that I called Taylor Swift a distraction? I mean, yeah, duh. I'll go deeply into that. And I will answer several of your probing, provocative questions, including did I pull an all-nighter from New Year's Eve into that morning's Undisputed? Another question about whether CeeDee Lamb is the unquestionable MVP, not Dak Prescott, of my Dallas Cowboys. And also an out-of-left-field question about my favorite subject in school. Who knew? But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. I open with one of your questions. Devon from Des Moines asks, Do you honestly believe the Cowboys deserve to win against the Lions? No, Devon, I do not believe they deserve to win on Saturday night. In fact, I predicted they would lose on Saturday night 24 to 23 by one point. And they rightfully did lose that game 21 to 20 by one point. Close enough. Jared Goff did drive the Detroit Lions when I least expected it 75 yards in six late plays to cut it to 20 to 19. That was a bad sign for my Cowboys. And CeeDee Lamb's one big play in the game, 92-yard touchdown from Dak Prescott, came on a play that Derek Barnes, the Detroit linebacker, clearly should have sacked Dak. For a safety. What, what was he thinking? He ran right past him. Another bad sign for my Cowboys. As always, 
with this Dallas Cowboy team. There was so much to like on Saturday night and so, so much to fear. I mean, wait, wait, only 61 rushing yards on 21 tries. That is another bad sign heading to the postseason. No Dallas Cowboy team I have ever loved, and I've loved them all since I was 10 years of age in 1961. No Dallas Cowboy team I have closely observed sunk my heart and soul into has mixed my emotions the way this Dallas Cowboy team has. I love them. I love them not. I see a Super Bowl team. I see a team that will lose its first playoff game. Back and forth, my emotions are tugged. So, yes, Devon, the Lions got robbed on Saturday night. Clearly, utterly robbed. You know the story. The head referee, Brad Allen, got confused. He choked. He screwed up. He wrongly assumed that Dan Skipper was reporting eligible the way Dan Skipper had reported numerous times eligible during the game, while Taylor Decker was actually on that last two-point conversion try trying to report along with Panay Sewell as eligible. If you look at the video, and I have 9,000 times, Brad Allen had already starting running, had started running to tell the Cowboys defense who was eligible. When Dan Skipper came in late, trotting in late, just to try to camouflage, disguise, fool the Dallas Cowboys into thinking that he was reporting eligible as he had again and again and again. I'm still not even sure Panay Sewell was trying to report as eligible. I think he was also set dressing camouflage beside Taylor Decker to distract the Cowboys from thinking that Taylor Decker actually was reporting eligible and hoping that as the Cowboys got informed that it was Taylor Decker, That information could come so late that with a quick snap, they could free Taylor Decker for the two-point pass as an eligible receiver. So you know what happened. Jared Goff rolled right. He threw back across the formation to a Taylor Decker who was barely open. There were a couple of Cowboys in the vicinity. But Taylor Decker made a nice grab for two points. Lions win. My immediate thought was, told you so. Until what seemed like about 10 minutes later, when on the telecast I'm hearing, flags? Flags? For what? What flags? Brad Allen saved us. Then, about no more than half a day later, you know what happened. The 3-12 Arizona Cardinals saved us even more. I kept waiting, watching the score of the Cardinals at Eagles game in the third quarter, then the fourth quarter. 
afraid to actually turn the game on because you know how I feel about jinxes. Every time I see a score that's moving in my direction, I turn the game on and it immediately flips back the other way and I lose it. I did not want to jinx that game, but I did watch the score go from 21 to 6 Eagles at halftime to 21 to 13 to 21 all. And finally, utterly to 35 to 31 Cardinals. Impossible. It was a it was a miracle. It took me several minutes to sit back and actually process that. Wait a minute. Wait just a minute. The heavens had just reopened, and my Dallas Cowboys were back in the saddle. We were, wait, we, we were back in business. All we have to do is go win as a 13 and a half point favorite at Washington, albeit against our historical arch rival. But all we have to do as a 13 and a half point favorite is go win at Washington. And we cinch, wait a second, the two seed, two potential home playoff games. in a stadium in which we've won 16 straight games? Really? Holy cowboy. We can't lose for winning. It's usually the other way around with us, but in this case, we could not lose for winning. We did not deserve to beat Detroit. No way the Eagles would lose at home to Arizona. But happy days are here again. Out of the blue, unexpectedly, unpredictably, impossibly, miraculously, happy days. We're very possibly, maybe even probably, going to play in our first NFC Championship game since the 1995 season. The last time my Cowboys, of course, won a Super Bowl. Then Sunday night, I started thinking about what my guy, Michael Irvin, has said again and again on Undisputed. That Jerry Jones finally putting Jimmy Johnson into the Cowboys' ring of honor Happened, of course, Saturday night at halftime. That that act alone would finally break what Michael called the Jimmy curse. That has hung over my franchise, our franchise, like a funeral shroud. Lo, these many years. So for those who don't quite remember the details, I wrote two books involving detailing dealing with this. Jerry got mad at Jimmy, his coach, for repeatedly disrespecting Jerry in front of assistant coaches and front office staffers. Jerry got so, so mad at an owner's meeting in which he went to a restaurant 
saw Jimmy and the cowboy assistant sitting at a big round table. Walked over, stood beside the table and proposed a toast to the Dallas Cowboys. And everybody toasted Jerry, all the assistants did, except the head coach, Jimmy Johnson. So Jerry tried again to the Dallas Cowboys and glared at Jimmy, who refused to lift his glass and clink it with Jerry's. So Jerry Jones went back to the hotel, saw two reporters from the Dallas Morning News sitting at that bar, went over and told them he was going to fire Jimmy Johnson and hire Barry Switzer, who had never, of course, coached in the NFL, who'd been out of college football. He was going to hire Barry Switzer to coach the Dallas Cowboys, who had had won back-to-back Super Bowls. That is correct, ladies and gentlemen. Jerry Jones fired Jimmy Johnson after he had coached the Dallas Cowboys to -to back-to-back Super Bowl championships. But because I wrote those two books detailing, dealing with this, I did understand why Jerry just got sick and tired of Jimmy's shaming him, albeit off camera, behind closed doors, behind the scenes. Yet, it was equally easy for me to see how Jimmy got sick and tired of Jerry's gigantic ego gigantic and intrusive ego needing and seeking more and more credit for those two Super Bowls. More than he deserved, even as the general manager of the Dallas Cowboys. I gave Jerry some credit, but he wanted more. In Jimmy's eyes, he wanted way too much. He wanted to share the stage with a Jimmy who had fought and worked his way all the way up the coaching ladder to the ultimate stardom and the town was no longer big enough for the both of them. I wished, I hoped against hope, that Jerry could have swallowed just a little bit of pride and lived with Jerry's behind-the-scenes disrespect. Because I believe with Jimmy in place, they could have won five Super Bowls in a row. I believe that with all my heart and soul. Michael Irvin believes that with all his heart and soul, his considerable heart and soul. So now, do I believe in curses? I do when the humans involved believe in said curse. Michael Irvin definitely believed in the Jimmy curse. I believe that Emmett Smith believed for many years in the Jimmy curse. I'm not sure about Troy. I did not ask Troy. I was afraid he might scoff at me or giggle at me, but but maybe. But I definitely believe Michael Irvin believed in the Jimmy curse and passed down his belief in said curse to several current cowboy leaders, starting with Dak, CeeDee Lamb. I believe if Michael believed, they started to believe. So let me ask you, do you have a more logical explanation for what happened Saturday night and Sunday afternoon in Philadelphia than a broken curse? I I don't. Now, here's where the comparison 
of the 1995 season and the 2023 Cowboys season get creepier, more and more ominous in a very good way. Think about this. In 1995, the Cowboys' arch rival and arch nemesis was San Francisco. Aha! Steve Young's 49ers had, of course, beaten Barry Switzer's Cowboys in the 1994 season NFC Championship game played at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. So that was the year before 95. They had beaten my Dallas Cowboys in the NFC Championship game, and they had gone on to slaughter the San Diego Chargers in that Super Bowl, as would have the Cowboys. Yet, on November 12th of the 1995 season, that same San Francisco team visited Dallas and embarrassed the Cowboys in what was then Texas Stadium 38 to 20, 38 to 20. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was there. The quarterback that day was not Steve Young. He was hurt. Backup Elvis Gerbach replaced him and did a number, thanks to Jerry Rice, on my Dallas Cowboys. I had to go up to ESPN the next day to do a show on Monday night in Bristol, Connecticut. And trust me, the sky had fallen on those poor, lost cowboys. All I heard all afternoon and all night on the show was, they are done. They got no shot against San Francisco. Elvis Gerbach had just embarrassed them at Texas Stadium. 38 points he had scored on my cowboy defense. Hmm. Does that remind you of anything that's been happening here lately between Dallas and San Francisco? Aha. So, on the final Sunday of that 1995 season, Steve Young's 49ers had to play an extremely winnable game at Atlanta. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? They blew it. They lost 28-27. to to Bobby Abair replacing Jeff George in that game. A Jeff George who struggled so mightily, he got replaced by a Bobby Abair who took over the game and outgunned Steve Young 28 to 27. What? It's impossible. It happened. That gave the Dallas Cowboys shockingly, the one seed. Even after they'd been embarrassed at home by San Francisco, they suddenly had the one seed. That sent the Green Bay Packers to San Francisco for a playoff game in which the 49ers at home were favored by nine and a half points over Brett Favre and company, which upset the 49ers at Candlestick 27 to 17. Aha! Glory be. Thank you, NFL gods. No more 49ers. That sent Brett Favre and company to Dallas for the NFC Championship game. And by the way, at that point in his career, Brett Favre was 0-6 against the Dallas Cowboys. 0-6. 
That day, he fell to 0-7 in his career against the Dallas Cowboys because the Cowboys won that game 38-27 to and frolicked on to a Super Bowl in Phoenix against a pretty average Steelers team. And they won pretty easily, did those Cowboys, 27-17. to I wrote a book about that season called Hell Bent because those Cowboys won in spite of themselves. One issue after another threatened to tear that team to pieces. Troy Aikman got mad at Barry Switzer, would not speak to him from December 4th through that Super Bowl, would not speak. You ever heard of that happening and a team winning the championship in spite of? It happened. But that team also won because the 49ers didn't win a home playoff game. That team won because it did not have to play the 49ers. I'm not sure that team as fractured as it was, could have beaten Steve Young's 49ers even at Texas Stadium in an NFC Championship game. So, back to now. What if, say, I don't know, the L.A. Rams of Matt Stafford and company, what if they somehow go to San Francisco They're about to do it this weekend. But what if they go back to San Francisco for a playoff game and knock them right out of the Cowboys' path? I still think the Cowboys, if necessary, can go back to San Francisco where they lost 19-12 to in a playoff game last year and beat the 49ers at their own game in their own stadium. I still believe that with all my heart and soul. But what if? What if the Dallas Cowboys get three home playoff games to get to the Super Bowl. What if the Cowboys run their home winning streak from 16 all the way up to 19 straight at home? What if Cowboy Nation descends on Las Vegas for a Super Bowl? Lord have mercy. Will you believe that we got there because of a broken curse? I I will admit to you right here, right now. I believe in that, in that broken curse, far more than I currently believe in my Dallas Cowboys. So much to like, so much to fear. But what if we look back? What if we look back at the end of this football season on Brad Allen's choke job blunder at the end of that Dallas-Detroit game as the launch point for a Super Bowl run? What if Brad Allen winds up being this season's real Dallas Cowboy MVP? With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, 
Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Next question is from Luke from Middleton, Wisconsin. Have you ever pulled an all-nighter from New Year's into Undisputed? That's a good question. I pulled a lot of all-nighters back in my days, college at Vanderbilt. Lots of finals featured all-nighters. I was always pretty sharp for those finals, and I always did pretty well in those finals. So I think I, I got some good training for the many near all-nighters that I have to pull for undisputed, especially during the NBA playoffs. But no on New Year's into New Year's Day because my wife Ernestine and I are not big on New Year's Eve, not big on celebrating, not big on partying, not big on leaving the house on what we dismiss as amateur night. It's just too dangerous out there. We stay put. We stay in. I have often worked on New Year's Day. This year, it was imperative because obviously there was NFL on New Year's Eve. So, Ernestine is from New York, born and bred. We keep all of our clocks on East Coast time because I do get up at 2 a.m. out here Pacific time in L.A., but I trick myself into saying, well, I always got up at 5 when I was at ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut and New York City. So if we keep all our clocks on East Coast time, I'll get up at 5 and I won't feel quite so awful about getting up in the middle of the night as opposed to at five, which is the start of the day. So because we're on New York time, Ernestine's going to watch on New Year's Eve, CNN, which allows you to see the ball drop on East Coast time in Times Square. So I definitely stayed up with her to watch the ball drop, to give her a kiss, to give our little daughter, quote unquote, our little Maltese Hazel, a kiss. A New Year's kiss. And then by 9.30 out here in LA, I was pretty lucky to be able to go to sleep. So I got four and a half hours sleep actually going into New Year's. The problem is Ernestine can be a worry wart and there's no morning in the 365-day calendar that she dreads and fears more than New Year's Day for me driving into where I sit now, the Fox lot, and these Fox studios. Because she fears, correctly, rightfully, that a lot of the drunk amateurs will just be winding down and winding up and be behind the wheels of their automobiles as they weave home sometime around the time I am driving into Fox. 
So she dreads me even leaving the house because she fears that even though the trip is very short for me, if I, as I often do, hot rod into the Fox lot, I am putting myself in grave danger out on the streets of Los Angeles at around four o'clock in the morning on New Year's Day. It would be the most dangerous time of the calendar year to be out on the LA streets, especially if you push the speed limit. But I always tell her I will be more careful than ever. I will drive a little more slowly than ever. Check, check, made it. Thank you, God. Now, there are many, many more nights a year, especially NBA playoff nights featuring West Coast teams that cut way deeper into my sleep and get closer to all-nighters than I have New Year's going into New Year's Day. There are many, many three-hour sleep nights. There are some two-hour sleep nights that are career-threatening, trust me. I've been very blessed to fall asleep. I know in my early days in this business when I was on cold pizza, if you remember cold pizza, out of New York City. We varied the times of the show. We moved it several times. But I was getting up very early. I I don't know, maybe 3 o'clock as opposed to 2 o'clock. But if you know Ambien, I tried Ambien for a while. My doctor actually recommended it. And, of course, if you try it, you'll like it because it really works to a fault. And you'll be hooked on it. And for a while, before I met Ernestine back in 2005, I, I got a little hooked on Ambien, and I had to unhook myself when I met her, but I did, and I'm very blessed right now. Thank you, God, for this, because I can fall and stay asleep pretty effectively now, even knowing that when the alarm goes off, I am jumping out of bed because the clock is ticking on me to get out onto the floor and be ready for Undisputed at 6.30 a.m. out here in L.A. There's so much to do to prepare for the show, especially now that I'm doing more moderating, have to write a lot of the leads into the topics. It's not easy, but thankfully I can sleep. I can get some sleep that will get me through to Friday night when I then sleep from about 10 p.m. out here until about 10 a.m. out here without getting up to use the bathroom. I usually go 12 straight hours, no bathroom. That's how tired I am. But New Year's, nope. That's actually a pretty good night of sleep for me. This is from Sly from Washington. Is CD the Cowboys MVP this season? If not, who is? So this brings up my new friend, Richard Sherman, my teammate on Undisputed. I don't often agree with Richard, but I always respect Richard's opinion because he is a very smart man, high sports IQ. But we got into it early on this year about my guy, C.D. Lamb. If you will remember, the night that the Dallas Cowboys had CeeDee Lamb fall out of heaven into their lap on down that draft board, I think I was on Facebook Live that night, I I did a dance. I am an Oklahoma football fan. 
I was sooner born and sooner bred, and when I die, I'll be sooner dead. But there are some Sooners I don't like. Didn't like Jason White, who won the Heisman Trophy. I didn't like Sam Bradford, who won the Heisman Trophy. Didn't think they could play in the NFL, and I was correct. Baker, yes. Kyler, yes. Jalen Hurts, yes. CD, yes, yes, yes. CD Lamb led the nation that final year at Oklahoma with no real help at receiver. It was CD or bust. He led the nation in yards after catch. I believe in CD Lamb. In fact, I've come to believe this Cowboy team has only one real baller on it. I'm talking about baller. Big game, big play, playmaker. Maybe not Michael Irvin, but close. One baller, and that's C.D. Lamb. Now the fourth 88 in the procession. And yet, early this season, Richard Sherman declared on Undisputed that he was not a believer in CD and disqualified CD as nothing more than a fringy number one receiver, meaning he wasn't even sure, Richard wasn't sure, that CD qualified as a real live, bona fide, genuine go to number one receiver. Fringy number one, said Richard. After that thing happened at San Francisco, that 42 to 10 thing, CD caught four balls that night for 49 yards. There was some weird, wacky, goofy Jerry Jones quote that sort of indicated he wasn't completely supportive of CD, sort of indicated he needed to see more of CD. Richard texted it to me, see? And I'm like, oh, come on, it's just goofy Jerry quotes, silly Jerry quotes. Sometimes he doesn't know what he's saying, and we run with it. No, Richard said, I, I think I got you on this one. No, you don't. In the 11 games since that 42 to 10 thing that happened at San Francisco, CeeDee Lamb has dominated pro football. The beautiful part of it is he's number one in those 11 games in targets in the NFL, which has led to number one in catches, which has led to number one in yards receiving, which has led to number two in touchdowns. He, over that span, has nine to 10 for Mike Evans. No shame there. C.D. Lamb is the realest deal. In pure performance, C.D. Lamb over the last 11 games has been the best receiver in pro football. I still think he's underrated because he creates such effortless separation. He doesn't look like he's moving at the rapid rate he's moving in quickness or speed. Effortless separation. He's, He's gone. He's separated. They don't take enough advantage of him as a deep threat. 
he's 50-50 wide out and slot receiver. A lot of it's over the middle. A whole lot of it's run after catch. And yet, he's underrated and underhyped and underappreciated because he does not have Michael Irvin's potent, powerful, charismatic personality. He has a nice personality. He's, he's a good interview, but he's not Michael Irvin. Or for that matter, Des Bryant. Or for that matter, a man that I covered, Drew Pearson. When I needed a go-to quote in the locker room in the late 70s or into the 80s, I went to Drew Pearson's locker. He was undrafted out of Tulsa. He was the first 88. He caught the literal first Hail Mary pass from Roger Staubach. He made so many great catches, game-changing catches. He was as great a clutch receiver as I've ever seen. This side of the playmaker, Michael Irvin. Dez is at least in the ballpark, but Dez doesn't have their personality, so he doesn't get the attention and acclaim yet that the others generated off the field in the locker room in interviews. CD catches a first down pass and he just puts a little finger up next to his cheek. I made a little first down. Michael Irvin makes a first down. First down. It's just different. Different personalities. Both fine. Maybe CD will never be remotely the leader that Michael was. I've said this before. Michael Irvin was the rocket fuel for the 90s dynastic Cowboys. You, you can come right back at him, you know, off the f- at me and say, you know, off the field, he, he could be a mess. He could. When it was time, weight room, locker room, sideline, huddle, he was the leader of Super Bowl teams that should have won five in a row as opposed to the three they won in four years. Maybe CD is not yet a leader of this team, but he is my ultimate baller. I think he's more valuable even than Dak Prescott. I would always argue on Undisputed, I'm sorry, it's a quarterback's game. And it is. But in this case, the receiver is actually helping make the quarterback more than the quarterback is helping make the receiver. The igniter is CD, not Dak, not Micah, as I'd hope going into this season. It's CD Lamb who plays like a lion. Okay, suffer me this, a quick left turn into James Joseph Harbaugh, head coach, University of Michigan, Wolverines, as you know, heading for the national championship game Monday night against Washington. Quick story, harking back to the 1995 Cowboys. I just mentioned that Super Bowl, as I mentioned, in Phoenix, actually in Tempe, at old Sun Devil Stadium. Spent that week in Phoenix. Did a lot of work for ESPN in those days. And that Sunday, I was on a show you might remember called Sports Reporters. 
with my dear and departed friend, Dick Schapp, a mentor to me, one of the greats in the history of this business, a supremely talented man in so many ways, sports, theater critic, raconteur. What a great man was Dick Schapp as our moderator of the sports reporters. I don't remember who my combatants were that day on the show. I'm assuming it was Mike Lupica and maybe Bob Ryan. But for our A block, our opening block, we had a guest on that Super Bowl sports reporters show that Sunday morning. The guest was Jim Harbaugh. Younger viewers may not realize this, but Jim Harbaugh was a very good NFL quarterback for a very long time. He was drafted 26th overall out of Michigan, where he had been the Big Ten Player of the Year. 26th overall in 1987 by the Bears. Covered a game in which he played for Mike Ditka's Bears at quarterback, and actually Jimmy Johnson's early Cowboys went up to Chicago. I was there and upset Jim Harbaugh and Mike Ditka 17 to 13 on a very cold Chicago day. But Jim went on to sign with Indianapolis, played for the Colts. And that year in 1995, he made the Pro Bowl and led the Indianapolis Colts to an AFC championship game at Pittsburgh that ended with Jim Harbaugh throwing a Hail Mary into the end zone, hitting Aaron Bailey right in the hands, and Aaron Bailey dropped the Super Bowl. He just cold, flat dropped it. Should have caught it, didn't. It happens. That time it happened to Jim Harbaugh, the same guy who's coaching Michigan in the national championship game. Steelers survived that game 20-16. to 16. Aaron Bailey hangs on. Jim Harbaugh's the quarterback in the Super Bowl against my Dallas Cowboys. So, my producer Joe Valerio managed to wrangle Jim Harbaugh as the opening block guest on Sports Reporters that morning to talk Cowboys-Steelers. Obviously, he knew the Steelers inside and out. So I tried to get to know him a little bit before the show. We always get there a couple hours early. Hair, makeup, bagels, orange juice, Diet Coke, whatever. Tried to small talk with Jim and got nowhere. Found him to be a pretty cold fish. Distant, aloof. Sort of momentarily just unlikable. So we get on the air. You know me, I get too fired up. I I wound up accidentally unleashing on him. He was making a case for Pittsburgh, and I just couldn't contain myself because I knew Dallas was way better than Pittsburgh at that point. That was Neil O'Donnell. The Steelers just weren't very good. 
They just weren't very. Rod Woodson was coming off a torn knee ligament and trying to play in the Super Bowl. He had no business playing in, but he did okay in it. But still, they just they weren't big bad Pittsburgh Steelers that Dallas had seen in Super Bowl ten and thirteen in Miami, both of which they lost to Terry Bradshaw and two of the greatest teams I ever saw. But on the air, Jim Harbaugh is making some case (laughs) for Pittsburgh. And I just remember I went into this and this, and then I went into the Cowboy offensive line, and I said, this is the greatest offensive line in NFL history, because it was. And I said, how is this Pittsburgh defense going to deal with those guys? And I... (laughs) turned to Jim Harbaugh, as God is my witness, on the air, and I said, you don't have a clue. And I didn't mean it to come out that way because he's a really smart guy, as we've seen again and again and again since then. But I said, you don't have a clue. And he didn't flinch. He looked at me like I was some ink spot on the chair, like I had no idea what I was talking about, and he was kind of looking around like, what the hell am I doing here speaking to these idiots? Why, why would I even stoop to engage with these fools? Fine. Didn't really like Jim Harbaugh. But I must admit, over these low many years, I have come to love Jim Harbaugh because I don't like him. I think Jim Harbaugh is the rarest. And I've told you this before. This quotation hangs on my refrigerator door from a long time ago Supreme Court justice named Felix Frankfurter. The quotation is, anybody who is any good is different from anybody else. Anybody who's any good is different from anybody else. Truer than true. rare, mold-shattering Jim Harbaugh. How many good-to-great NFL players make good-to-great NFL coaches? You just don't see it. It just doesn't happen. Bart Starr was a pretty good NFL quarterback for great Green Bay teams. I don't think he was better than Jim Harbaugh was, but he was in the right place at the right time. He was more of a game manager. Had two great running backs, a couple of very good receivers, and a great defense, and obviously an all-time great head coach. He game-managed for those Packers. He tried to coach those Packers and failed miserably. Mike Ditka was a great player, tight end, great player. I mentioned the 85 Bears to start this show. Is Mike Ditka a great head coach? He's pretty wacky. I got to know him fairly well. He was a Dallas assistant before he became the Bears head coach. He had charisma. He was the perfect fit for the perfect town and the perfect team, those 85 Bears. But they were led by their defense, which was coached by Buddy Ryan. Don't get that twisted. So here comes Jim Harbaugh, a very good quarterback, and he shatters the mold because... He's become an all-time great coach when you factor in both college and pro. College football is hard to coach. 
And similarly, it's very hard for college coaches to cross over into pro football, see Nick Saban, miserable failure. Pete Carroll has been sensational both places, but he, whew, did he fall in to a talent nest at USC? Was that not a sleeping giant at USC? He did a great job with great players, and he did an even better job, you can argue, in Seattle in the NFL. Rough time at New England the first go-around, but still, Pete Carroll has been all-time great, college and pro. Jim Harbaugh's, (laughs) he's gaining on him. Because if you look at what Jim did, he goes to the University of San Diego, they're no good, and he turns them around. He goes to Stanford, they're no good, and he turns them into a powerhouse. Did numbers on Pete Carroll twice. Huge upset of Pete Carroll to sort of launch his time at Stanford. Remember how they got into it as they shook hands? Pete Carroll asking him, what's your deal when he went for two late in the game, run up a score, I think it was 2009, it was 55 to 21. That's Harbaugh. Richard Sherman participated in that huge upset. They were a 41 and a half point favorite. I'm sorry, USC was a 41 and a half point favorite over Stanford at the Coliseum. And Stanford pulled it out with Tavita Pritchard at quarterback. Richard Sherman caught a big late pass. He was a very good college receiver. That was in 2007. That was 24 to 23. Jim Harbaugh announcing his presence. Then he goes to the 49ers. He takes them to three straight championship games, took them to the Super Bowl against his brother John and the Baltimore Ravens. Because Jim Harbaugh had the vision and the guts to switch quarterbacks in midstream, midseason. He went with this kid, Colin Kaepernick, over Alex Smith, the first pick in the draft. He went with Colin Kaepernick, and was he ever right? I'm not sure Colin would have ever quite been Colin if not for Jim Harbaugh giving him that first opening and shot, believing in him, supporting him, hanging with him all the way home to a Super Bowl in which Colin Kaepernick threw a last-ditch pass to Michael Crabtree in the end zone. I thought it was pass interference, but I guess they're not going to call that. And in the lights-went-out game, John prevailed over his brother, Jim, younger by about a year or so. Jim just turned 60. John is 61. So Jim winds up back at his alma mater at Michigan. I have a lot of friends who went there, a lot I keep in touch with. Jim can be nutty, be quirky, be goofy. He is, as Michael Irvin has said on Undisputed, the classic younger brother. Look at me. I need attention. I'm going to do this, so you'll have to look at me. I'm going to do that. So you can't take your eyes off me, needing, seeking attention, getting attention. He can be difficult to be around. He can be not such a nice guy. Jim has high burnout factor. He burned the people out 
in San Francisco until they finally said, enough, more trouble than worth. Great coach, but no, we've had enough of this. Shocking to me, he's in his ninth year at Michigan. I thought he would have burned out long ago, and they were almost done with him. Remember, he was on the hot seat. They cut his salary. He had that one bad year in 2017 in which they went eight and five. But I always believed in him. I think he's a really cerebral genius of a football coach. He can be hard on quarterbacks because he played the position at a high level. That's why so many stars can't coach. They're just too demanding. Why can't you do what I did? Because they're not you. Nobody's going to be you. And what superstar wants to pay all the prices you have to pay to, to stoop, to crawl, to recruit these kids? All the headaches now caused by the transfer portal and the NILs. It's just hard. It's one long headache. Jim Harbaugh is really good at it. Never forget off that eight and five year, I believed in him so much going into 2018 that my then partner on Undisputed, Shannon Sharp, not a Harbaugh fan, got rolling one morning on Undisputed before the season started, called Jim khaki pants because he always wore those ridiculous khakis during games. Doesn't really wear them so much anymore. I guess he's gone high fashion now. Shannon said, I'll bet you Jim Harbaugh won't win five games this year and be fired at the end of the year. I said, deal. What do you want on it? I think we bet, we used to bet cases of Diet Mountain Dew. I think we bet 10 cases of Diet Mountain Dew that Jim couldn't win more than five games. And they went 10 and three that year. That was easy money. I love Diet Mountain Dew. Breakfast of Champions, Nectar of the Gods. I don't bet it anymore with Keyshawn, Richard. We just bet dinners. I'm up five on Keyshawn, and I'm looking good for six and seven. Up four on Richard. Keyshawn did pay one back. It was a lunch, not a dinner, but I'll accept it. Look at Jim Harbaugh now. Since that eight and five, and then that 10 and three, he's gone 12 and two, 13 and one, and 14 and 0. He is, or was, one and six in bowl games, and the Michigan faithful, queasy and uneasy about that going into Monday night, passed. But now he's two and six in bowls because he won the national semifinal in an instant classic of a game. Still get goosebumps talking about it and thinking about it because what a game that was. I don't want to rehash it all, but Blake Corum took over in overtime when I thought J.J. McCarthy couldn't, and he didn't have to. And it came down to one Jalen Milrow run, one call. There was a timeout, another timeout. Saban said we had three plays in a row called and changed because of the two timeouts. They just went with, Snap it to Jalen and let him run straight ahead. They hoped Michigan would blitz, bring pressure from all sides, and maybe hit a crease. No, he hit a stone wall, and that was that. And Jim Harbaugh 
is the favorite by four and a half points to win it all. I believe he will. I think they'll win it by 10 points. Jim Harbaugh has shattered the mold. A former Pro Bowl quarterback becoming the best coach in college football after making a case that for a while he was the best coach in pro football. I don't really like Jim Harbaugh, but I love him as a coach. All right, here's another left turn of a question. This is from Davey from, of all places, right on time, Michigan. What was your best subject in school? Okay, suffer me this. You ask, I will answer. It was always English. I don't know how or why, but I could always write. So I excelled at English. I'll reiterate quickly the story of being in an advanced English class at a public high school called Northwest Classen in Oklahoma City my sophomore year. That class was taught by the journalism teacher named Liz Burdett who the first day of school assigned us book reports. She said, one page only, book of your choice. I just want to see if any of you can write, because she had an eye on finding talent to work for the school newspaper. I chose a sports book on a former Giants and 49ers quarterback named Y.A. Tittle. I thought it was horrible. I wrote a scathing one-page review of said book. I'd never written anything in my life. I just thought it was a poorly written book that felt like it had been written overnight in one night. I turned it in on maybe Wednesday, Friday. As class ended, Liz Burdett called me up. I thought I was in big trouble. And she said, you're coming into journalism. I said, I have no interest in journalism. She said, you do now. And she changed my life. English. I had a course taught by Mrs. Speed at Northwest called Humanities about very early Greek lit. It was such a great course. She was such a great teacher. She's in my heart. Liz Burdett owns my heart. They launched me toward winning a scholarship for sports writing called the Grant Lurie Scholarship to Vanderbilt University, where I majored in English. I minored in history. I like history. I'm, I'm very good at history on Jeopardy. You can ask my wife. But my primary focus was always English. Any of the great courses there, Vanderbilt is such good. It's the best school in the country. I'm sorry. I'll give it a quick commercial because it just flat out is. But I took 19th century and 20th century American lit from Dr. Condor. I took a great Southern lit course from Herschel Gower. I took a great fiction writing course from Dr. Sullivan, who taught me so much about writing. And finally and faithfully, actually my favorite class of all at Vanderbilt was Shakespeare. I'm pretty good at Shakespeare on Jeopardy. 
But this story ends with a sad note, a bizarre note, because that course required us to write papers about various Shakespeare plays, one being Midsummer Night's Dream. And remember, neither of my parents even graduated from high school, and I was the oldest, so I had no guidance whatsoever. I had no idea what I was doing. I just did it. God was good. God gave me some ability, but I was an overachiever. And because I had no guidance, my sophomore year at Vanderbilt, I'm in Shakespeare and I didn't know any better. I was at the bookstore one evening at Vanderbilt and I saw these things called cliff notes. I didn't know anything about cliff notes. I, I wasn't exposed to them when I was in high school. But they're really good. And they give you the synopsis and the summary. And they, they actually give you some good commentary on Midsummer Night's Dream or whatever cliff notes you want to pick up and buy. So I bought this one because I, I like the feel of it. And I actually gained some insight into a character called Bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. And so when I wrote about Bottom in my bibliography at the bottom of my paper, I footnoted Cliff's Notes. I think it's Cliff's with apostrophe S, Cliff's Notes. And gave it credit because it wasn't me, it was them. I stole that. I plagiarized it, whatever you want to say. But I gave it credit because I hadn't thought of that. And... I got a note that my professor wanted to see me and my professor reamed me out for using Cliff Notes, Cliff's Notes. And he told me that my paper deserved an A grade, but that he was going to reduce it to a C because I had dared to use Cliff's Notes. I didn't know any better. That C cost me an A, ultimately, in Shakespeare. I got a B in that course. And in the end, I graduated from Vanderbilt cum laude, but not magna cum. And I don't know how that works, so don't hold me to it. I'm just not sure. But I always wondered, did my use of cliff notes cost me magna cum laude? Did did that one grade that, that was the only B I got in any English course. Major in English, got one all A's and one B. Was it because of Cliff Notes? I don't know, but I still think about that to this day. All right, one last thought. On Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. So, I have said several times on this podcast, I've said several times on Undisputed, I have tweeted maybe a couple of times, once for sure, about how Taylor Swift has become a distraction, not only for Travis Kelsey, but for the Kansas City Chiefs, the defending Super Bowl champs. And now I still see it pop up on the internet. Again, I don't follow anyone, but I can't help 
scrolling through various stories. I just see it pop up. Skip Bayless called Taylor Swift a distraction. Well, duh. I, I mean, <laughs> she's a distraction because she is she. She's the biggest gate attraction in all of entertainment right now. She's it. So it's the biggest duh in entertainment on Twitter for me to say she's a distraction because what else could she be? She's she. She shows up at games, not in a disguise, sitting in the back row of some box where we can't find her. No, she stands up at the front in full Taylor Swift regalia, Chiefs regalia. She stands up at the front of the box, full on in the window, cheerleading, posing, acting, maybe overacting. She's being full on Taylor Swift, the entertainer, and it is very entertaining. I think she knows full well she's going to be on camera. And I think she loves being on camera, and I don't condemn that. I don't criticize that for one second. That's who she is, and that's who her boyfriend is. I read a quote from one of the twin brothers who manages Travis Kelsey his career off the field, all of his appearances, his commercials, his podcasting. Read the quote yesterday that said from one of the twin brothers, we position Travis to become world famous. The story goes on to say that they promised Travis two years ago that he would become bigger than The Rock. And he said, well, there's no way. I, Dwayne's it. No, they said, you'll become bigger than The Rock. And you can make him a case he's on the way. He's in every other commercial I see on television. And it doesn't hurt that he's with her. It doesn't hurt her that she's with him. I'm not saying that's why they're together, because they seem to be very happy together. God bless them both. But here's the point. She's become a distraction to the Chiefs because he's become such a distraction to the Chiefs. He's becoming as much a megastar in sports as she is in in her world, in the song world, in the entertainment business. And I'm a little surprised, even though Travis has talked about thinking about retirement, Because if you know football the way I do, if you know pro football the way I do, it's all about unity. It's all about one for all and all for one. The teams that are most united routinely go the farthest in the playoffs. The team that's tightest routinely wins the Super Bowl. 
the competition is so fierce in the NFL. That's why we all love it so much, because any given Sunday, anybody can beat anybody. It requires such a singular focus by the stars on the team to stay locked in for an endlessly long season that takes such a toll on your body and your mind and your soul. And Travis at times seems like he's got one foot in and one foot out. He feels sometimes a little semi-retired to me, like he's thinking more and more about what's out there in the future. He's got his Super Bowl rings. But if you look at what's happened to Travis's productivity over the last nine games, he got off to that big, hot Travis Kelsey start. She was at those games, and I thought in a good way he was just showing off for her. I believe he was. And then all of a sudden, he started to get a little beat up. Defenses started saying, no, Patrick, you you can't have him every play. Maybe he lost a half a step. He used to be able to separate like nobody's business. I, I would say, how did they do that? They had such great backyard chemistry and rapport that he could uncover the way no tight end is ever uncovered. Last nine games, Travis Kelsey, greatest receiving tight end ever, 34 years of age, nine games, he's averaged five catches and 51 yards a game. That is not Travis Kelsey. I'm very surprised that even after winning another Super Bowl last year, that he committed so much time, so much focus, so much energy to all the commercial making, and then ultimately to her. In the middle of a season, to date her is hard. She is she. She is huge. She is a force. And that force is going to take some of your energy and focus away from the fiercely difficult competition that is the National Football League. So is she a distraction for the team? How many times do they get asked about her? How many times has Andy Reid had to answer questions about her? And they they love her, and I think they truly do love her. But anything, this is what I know about the NFL, anything that takes an ounce of focus and concentration away from winning football games, especially in November and December into January, anything is a distraction to a football team. That's it for episode 95. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern. The Skip Bayless Show, every week.